Welcome to this podcast from the Triple Helix Cambridge April Café Scientific event, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month's Café Scientifique investigated the field of conservation, specifically the conservation of our apes and the threats they face in the tropical rainforests of Kalimantan in Indonesia. The event speaker was Dr Susan Chain of the Orangutan Tropical Peatlands Project. And to find out more about the issues facing the Indonesian peatlands and how conservation can address these problems, I spoke to Susan before the event. Uh, today, this year rather, is the year of biodiversity. What I'm hoping to get across is that science can be used and must be used in terms of conservation. We need the science to understand what we're trying to protect and then we need that information to actually give to people on the ground to make this protection and conservation of wildlife and habitat actually work. And what aspect of conservation do you work on? We work in the tropical peat swamp forests of Indonesia, predominantly focusing on the big flagship species of gibbons, orangutans and uh, cats. But what we need to do is take a very integrated approach to looking at this. We can't just have the behavioural ecology side of things. We also have to work very closely with local people. We also need to understand the ecosystem interactions within the forest itself. So we have to involve a lot of people from many different science backgrounds to really make the project work. And so what are the main threats facing, say, gibbons, for example, in this area? Most people would probably think with Indonesia and what's available on the news and and in the media at the moment that palm oil is the biggest threat. In fact, actually, for where we are, fire is the biggest problem. Because we're on peat swamp forest, most people, if you are aware of peat, when it dries, it burns particularly well. And in the dry seasons of Indonesia, also with a bunch of human-caused factors that help drain the peat, it becomes tinderbox dry. When that fire burns, it burns not only the forest above but the ground underneath, which means following fire events, it's very difficult for the forest to regenerate, even with help. So palm oil is certainly a big problem, but the immediate threat to the area where I work is actually the fire, not palm oil. And what is the palm oil problem? The problem is that vast areas of generally pristine forest are clear-felled, totally cleared of all, all trees and vegetation, and then replaced with a monoculture, which means simply one species of just palm oil. Now, This is a cash crop. We use palm oil in a vast number of products in in the UK and and around the world, toothpaste, uh, shampoo, chocolate, biscuits. The problem is that these pristine rare areas of forest are clear-felled and all biodiversity and wildlife within them are lost. There are big tracts of land in Indonesia and Malaysia that have already been cleared for various reasons and could be used to plant palm oil because it's a huge part of the Indonesian and Malaysian economy. If that was being done and degraded land was being replanted with palm oil, that would be fine. The fact is that the standing pristine old forest is being cleared instead of replacing the biodegraded land because, of course, if you cleared out clear trees, you get money back from that timber whilst you're waiting for the palm oil crop to grow. But the main problem that you're looking into in your particular region is the effect of fires. And what are the repercussions of these fires then on the habitat of, say, gibbons? The main problem is that because the fires burn so intensely and so deep into the forest, into the, into the peat and the ground, it's very difficult to help the forest regenerate and large areas can burn very, very quickly. There's also the long-term implications of, because these fires can last for up to three months, there's great poles of smoke cover the country and I'm not exaggerating when I say you don't see the sun for three months because of the smoke. So there's long-term health implications, not just for the animals but also the humans. 
The fact that the trees are not getting access to sunlight means their productivity is going to decrease, which means in the future there's probably going to be a reduction in food available for, for the gibbons and, and orangutans to feed on. So the fire isn't simply an event that happens and then stops. It has very long-term repercussions, which we truly don't fully understand. And so how are you setting about tackling this problem with your conservation projects? We're very lucky to have a fantastic Indonesian sponsor, Simtrop, and they've come up with some brilliant ideas of how to tackle the fires because most of the fires happen very far away from rivers and there's really no groundwater that can be used to fight the fires. So they've come up with a method where they've just bore down to the water table and with a portable generator pump the water directly out the ground, which means fires can be fought almost anywhere and you don't have to be near, say, a river or a lake to be able to get that water. That's a a way of looking at the problem as soon as the fires have started. What we need to do, of course, is stop the fires in the first place. And so from that point of view, we're very much involved in education campaigns, explaining to people how to keep fires under control, because there is a degree of slash and burn where people will clear their own little gardens to allow replanting each year. But when things are so dry, those fires very quickly go out of control, and that's when the problem really starts. And so it's, it's a two-pronged approach, really, is to fight the fires when they happen and to make sure that people are aware of the long-term problems with the fires and how to tackle them when they see them. And how long have these projects been running? And so what have the effects been so far? Well, we've been working out there for the last 11 years now. The fires have only become a problem, well, really in the last sort of 10 years. The unfortunate reality is that they're becoming more frequent. It's a difficult problem to tackle throughout the whole of Indonesia, the very far-flung islands. And so what we're really trying to do is to not wait for people to rely on the government to provide help, but to give them a sense of ownership and responsibility for what's happening. But for that, of course, you need to be able to provide the right equipment and you need to have a backup pot of money for when people get injured. This is a very dangerous activity and people inevitably will get injured at some point. Now, one animal that you particularly focus on is the gibbon, also apes. How do you set about monitoring them? Two different ways. When you're looking at the behaviour, it basically does involve running around the forest looking at them. Looking in very much detail about how they interact with the forest, what they feed on and when, what their activity is like, how they interact with other wildlife. Particularly important is what they feed on and when because forest productivity, as I was talking about with the fire, is very important. And particularly if an area is potentially going to be given over to selective logging, we need to know what the absolute most important species for those tree species are for the apes because then we can make recommendations to say those ones shouldn't be touched. In terms of monitoring the population so that we can see the impacts of fires and human impact on the forest, we do that in two ways. With the orangutans, they build nests, and so a simplified version, you can go out and count the nests. The gibbons sing. They have these amazing early morning duets, and you can use those to triangulate and work out how many groups you have within a certain area, and from that you can then extrapolate and obtain a density. So what have the effects been on their numbers? Well, we think that following the big fires of 97-98, we think that there was actually a population crash of about 30% at the beginning of this decade, at the beginning of the new century. I mean, that's, that's quite a dramatic crash in, in a, a species that potentially only has about 60,000 animals left in the wild, and that's being optimistic. What we can see now from our study site, having been doing the population monitoring for quite a long time, seven plus years, these populations are slowly, slowly increasing, which is a good positive news. It's just it does indicate that, yes, there must have been a crash in the past. But the nice positive story is that we are seeing an increase and our our science is proving that. And one aspect, just lastly, that you focus on also is just educating them, people in these regions. How are your education programmes set out to tackle that particular problem? 
What we actually do, because we're a, a UK-based NGO, is that we predominantly, as Westerners, don't actually do most of the education. We work with a, an Indonesian NGO who's set up by Indonesians from the local area, and they're the ones that actually go out and do the education campaigns. We're of the opinion that that sort of education comes across much better from the Indonesians. We provide the science and the pictures, but we definitely think that the education, regional education, needs to come to the Indonesians from Indonesians with help and support from us. And in terms of educating people outside of Indonesia, well, giving talks like this and uh, our blog, our website, making, making people aware of that sort of thing as well, making all of the information that we've got accessible to the public and not just in, in the dry scientific publications that will have no interest to the general public. And uh, the overall aim then, so the goal? To put ourselves out of a job. If the forests were protected, the biodiversity was safe and there were no fires, we wouldn't be needed. Dr Susan Chain from the Orangutan Tropical Peatlands Project, explaining how her group are setting about monitoring and improving the plant and animal populations of the peat swamp forests of Indonesia. Now, the main aim of Café Scientifique is to help the residents of Cambridge understand more about the night's chosen topic. So after Susan's talk, as usual, the audience members got their questions answered. I found out about well-documented in that location. I still, is there still a lot to know, to get to know there? For the mammals and the birds, it's quite well-documented. Um, just in the last 18 months, we've actually added four new mammals to our list and three new birds that we didn't know existed. The amphibians, the reptiles, the snakes, desperately in need of, of more research. The fish as well, because it's peat water, the river, it's a blackwater river, so there's absolutely no visibility in it. And these fish are, of course, adapted to not being able to see anything, and we simply don't know enough about them at all. So even though we have very extensive lists, as I said, the camera traps just in the last year are showing up new stuff, so... It's really interesting because in the early 90s, peat swamp forest was widely dismissed as being useless for any kind of biodiversity. It was perceived to be very poor in terms of tree species and very poor in terms of any other kind of biodiversity. What it seems, or what it definitely is, it's, it's very rich in biodiversity, but all of these things exist at quite low densities. So the perception of peat swamp forest as a, a conservation importance, not just for trees and habitat, but the carbon sequestering that can go on under the ground and within the trees is, is something that we're only just starting to realise. And related to that, do local people help a lot in actually identifying species and stuff like that? So kind of ethnobotany, ethnobiology? Yes, especially with the trees. Um, because most of the Indonesian staff we work with at some point have been loggers or, or hunters. They know the tree species. The only reason I know the trees as well as I do is because they've taught me. I can identify what a gibbon and orangutan is. But even now, after having been working there for sort of 10 years, the Indonesians will look at a tree and know exactly what it is. Unless I see a leaf or, or, or a fruit, I'm still stumped. They can identify things by bark, and I still have a lot to learn for that. The Indonesian government, um, supportive and enthusiastic? Well, they give us permits to let us go there. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated situation in Indonesia because of the decentralisation of government from Jakarta. The, the local government in the area where we work, central Kalimantan, um, are certainly supportive. They are normally quite good at, at sharing data they've collected with us, particularly data about fire hotspots of, of areas around where we work that are burning that we can then use to identify where potential threats are for us. The regional governor at the moment is very, very supportive, but of course they change every five years, and who's to say that the next one we get will actually be as supportive of this as well? So... 
it's it's a very slow process. But yes, the ones that don't actively work for us are certainly not at the moment working against us. And there are there is hope that the local departments of forestry and conservation and even the governor, as I said, are supportive of this. But there is a limited amount of power that they have because they're not central government. Is the um, felling of trees and logging and the destruction of the forests slowing down? And have they found maybe some sort of substitute for some of the logging, such as bamboo? Not so much where we are, because the very specific types of trees that grow on peat soil. The different types of soil, different forests, I would say that actually the rate of logging, rate of legal logging, has probably decreased. The rate of illegal logging, of course, to replace that has increased. Again, I can't remember the exact numbers. There's something frightening, like it's estimated about 80% of timber coming out of Indonesia is illegal. And uh, therefore certainly not FSC accredited. And um, the issues of people working in the illegal logging industry, I mean, a tree that's sort of, they're trying to move it with their bare hands and a few crowbars. You know, that one crowbar slips, that lands on somebody's leg in the middle of nowhere. There's no NHS that person is in serious trouble. But there is still a demand for it, unfortunately. So in some areas, yes, the logging is definitely decreasing. But in other areas, it's simply just being sort of logged and replaced with palm oil. So, yeah, the logging is still a serious problem. You were talking about um, some well, people needing to feed their families. What kind of alternatives do, do, do you offer or the governments to hunters or loggers to not? Um, there's two alternatives that our Indonesian sponsor uh, has come up with. One is, I mean, everyone is, they're used to working in the forest, but they're also fishermen. Because the peat swamp should be flooded most of the time, and even in the dry season, there should always be standing water, which seems to be acting as, as spawning pools for a lot of these fish, especially the catfish. And then the forest floods and this all gets washed into the river, and so these pools are acting as nurseries. However, when the forest throughout the dry season is totally dry, these nurseries are depleted, so then stocks in the rivers are depleted, and people... Talking to people, they can see this even just in the last five years. Their fish catches are going down. So one of the things that Simtrop's come up with is uh, giving money to create fish nurseries on the rivers to people <clears throat> as an alternative source of income as well and get them like uh, microfinance so they to get them off the ground. Mm. The second alternative is a thing called buying living trees. So people generally have these kebuns, these little gardens that they look after. And part of the problem is they burn them every year to, to replant. So... One thing that's done is about they'll be given a certain number of, of saplings of trees that have commercial value. So fruit trees, gelatin trees for tapping rubber. And then they'll be given about the, the similar number of species of what we call forest trees. So wild native trees to the area. These will all be planted in amongst each other. And the idea is that the families can do whatever they want with the commercial species. They can keep them until they grow. They can chop them down for timber and that they keep that income. However... For every single one of the forest trees that they allow to keep standing, which acts as a fire break, which acts as keeping moisture in the ground, etc., they also receive additional income. So if they kill all their forest trees and just keep the commercial trees, well, we don't work with them anymore or we try and do something that's gone wrong, uh, try and work out what, what went wrong. But most of the time, because every month that you keep these forest trees going, you receive money. And then obviously we can harvest seeds from them to help with replanting in, in, in different areas of the forest. So this, again, seems to be working really, really well. The, the issue is finding money to finance this. Um, development grants don't cover this sort of thing. Research grants in terms of looking at biodiversity behaviour and that sort of thing doesn't cover working with local people. It's, it's the sort of thing that everybody 
recognises must happen, but nobody's willing to actually put money into. Could you say something about the trends in human population, both in the region where you work and in Indonesia generally? <coughs> Yes, they, a lot of people say that the population increase around the world is the elephant in the room that we don't talk about in conservation. That is without, without a doubt a, a problem because increased population will of course have an increased pressure on natural resources and will have an increased number of people who want to reach the sort of development stage that we have in the West, which of course then brings with it far more consumption of natural resources. I think probably two, the two-pronged solution to that if you've got reasonable health care and you can be sure that most of your kids will survive, you don't need to have as many kids. If you've got educated women who have got control over their own reproductive biology, then you also won't have quite as many children being born. So more children that survive, not just to sort of the age of five or six, but will actually survive up to, to adulthood. And then having educated women who are seen as, as valuable within the community is, is definitely the way forward. Because you, if you look at the population trends in the West where we have excellent healthcare system and um, educated women. You know, families tend to be sort of two, three offspring, whereas some families in Indonesia, you can have sort of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten just from one family because there's such a high mortality rate. So Susan, a lot of us here, I don't think we'll ever have the opportunity to even spend one night in a forest. Is there anything you can tell us about a typical day that you have? Just, I mean, because you spend six months of the year there now. So it obviously makes a part of, a huge part of your life. It's home away from home, yes. Mm. Um, it depends what I'm doing, because all of these problems that we're talking about and, and the issues, and yes, we have to analyse our data, yes, we must make sure what we find gets out there, but this is just great fun. So like, if I'm, if I'm having to go follow, follow gibbons, they wake up before dawn, and the idea of following them is that we have absolutely no influence on them. They go, we follow, we see what they do. They get upset, we leave. So that normally means getting up at four o'clock in the morning, getting into the forest when it's still dark, ideally being in the centre of the group that I want to follow about quarter to five, wait till they start singing, track in on them, and then I'm with them until they go to bed, which is potentially about half past three in the afternoon. It's a similar thing with the orangutans, except they tend to make their nest a lot later, and so you sometimes aren't, you've been up since four o'clock in the morning, you don't get home till seven. It's quite long days. Um, we definitely don't do that all the time. There is, of course, also the less exciting days of being sat at camp doing the data analysis and producing reports but that's absolutely essential. So Susan's passion for this project is clear as is the complexity of conserving these species and improving their populations. Now after the event I spoke to some of the audience members to find out their thoughts on the evening starting with some regular attendees. We in fact come to each of these lectures because they're stimulating and interesting they're far more interesting than watching television and at our age I mean you know this is part of our geriatric education if you and like. always on the search for new knowledge never too old to be young mm -hmm. and well what did you think about today's event about conservation did you know much about conservation before um, we follow it very very closely uh, presentation was excellent and, uh, it, and it shows the complexity of the issue. Now, there is no one silver bullet. I mean, you know, you, you fix one thing and it creates a plethora of other things, which, well, good luck to her. Well, uh, I've done a course in conservation, so I always like to have a look at all different projects over the world. 
What did you learn much about this particular area then, so the forest in Indonesia uh, tonight? It, it was good because it showed a place that uh, looks like it wasn't well known. So it's always good. And I, I've noticed there's a lot of locations like that around the world that people don't quite know so much. And, you know, nowadays we're getting through with those places. So, so it's good to increase awareness of them. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was um, very nice to see such a confident speaker who just talks freely and and, uh, um, speaks about things that might seem quite common knowledge, but at the end of the day we don't discuss enough. So I thought it was very good how she presented her ideas. And did you learn anything about this particular area of conservation today, about the apes or the Indonesian forests? Uh, Yes, I mean, I I work for Fauna and Flora International, so um, they also are very involved in uh, this kind of conservation in Kalimantan, so I was particularly interested in seeing what this group of researchers and people, conservationists, do. So most people seem to have walked away with a good insight into the threats facing the Indonesian rainforests, as well as the challenges faced by conservationists that are trying to improve the situation. Now, that's almost it for this month. But before we go, here's one of the Café Scientifique organisers, Dr Dervale Glynn, to give us a heads up on what to expect at next month's cafe. So next month, on Wednesday the 19th of May, we'll have a very interesting talk given by Giles Yeo from the Institute of Metabolic Studies up near Addenbrookes. And he will be giving a talk based on the genetics of obesity entitled, Are Your Genes to Blame When Your Genes Don't Fit? So that will be at 7.30pm in the Lacrim studio at the ADC Theatre here in Cambridge. And you can find out more about that event online at cafescientifique.org forward slash Cambridge. So come along in May to find out more about the science behind obesity. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council. And this podcast was produced by me, Mira Senthilingam, from thenakedscientist.com. Hold up. 